0: Welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cine nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny, and with me as always is my co-host Nick.
1: Hello, hello, hello.
0: The premise of our show is very simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood. And the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from from their specialty.
1: So that would be anything really from 1970s New Hollywood through to uh, the current blockbuster age that we're living in.
0: Cool. The only rule is that both picks of the weeks have to be the first time viewing for the other person. So Nick, what have you got on for today?
1: Um so today it's kind of kind of leading towards like the jealousy route we're actually talking about two horror films um for a change uh that's got kind of got me excited um so we're looking at the neon demon uh which came out in 2016 directed by Nicholas Winding Ruffin, um and then we are also looking at whatever happened to baby jane uh, which came out in 1962 directed by Robert Aldrich um, so before we talk about Baby Jane, which I know Danny can't look for, can't wait to look to talk about. Um, it's true. How, how many? How much? Yeah. How how long? How long is this podcast going to be? What? Two, three hours?
0: Well, it's, it's just, <laughs> just, let's just, it's just see. Just going to be. be-
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to have a have a quick one. Well, try and talk try and talk nicely about the Neon Demon. Nicely uh, so being a, the what, operative word. Nice, Yes. Be nice. Um oh, cool. so I've got a bit of a plot synopsis. Um when aspiring model Jessie moves to Los Angeles, her youth and vitality are devoured by a group of beauty obsessed women who will take any means necessary to get what she has. Very vague. Um Yeah. And but I think it does a decent that little sentence does a nice little job in kind of summarizing the the general the general gist of the neon demon um so from our last conversation last week, we established you had seen drive before uh, i Nicholas have yes. other uh one of his other films um i just i wanted to ask if you'd seen Bronson uh with starring tom hardy
0: i haven't is that the same no? director i know I've yeah, heard it about is. it i've seen some clips uh i w- remotely know kind of what it's about but i've not Mm. managed to see it
1: the only reason why i ask is because um i feel that um audiences were kind of um uh what's the word like nicholas would reference kind of misrepresented himself with his popular hit drive um in that it's so straight down the barrel um that uh, there's a lot of people that I wouldn't consider cinephiles to love it, and even with the act of shocking violence in there, I talk about the elevator scene, um, when people go and see a Nicholas Wendon Refn film, another one, they are then shocked about what is actually a Refn film. Uh, which leads me on to asking you what you thought of The Neon Demon.
0: Okay, so, bearing in mind that we've we've looked at this sort of we've paired these two films in in reference to the idea of beauty and the idea of like fading beauty and what how important is beauty in the life of a woman um i thought it was it was a good pairing with what i'll be talking about in a minute um with the neon demon i liked the first half of it uh, I liked the eerie quality of it, the slow pacing. I thought it, w- it was trying to make a point. I was on board. Um, the first half of the film made me think of Nocturnal Animals, which is a film favorite of mine, uh, directed by Tom Ford, starring um, Amy Adams. Um, but back to it—it like, it lost me uh, at Necrophilia and. Um, cannibalism.
1: When it it turned. When it turned, basically.
0: So, it's just like... If it'd been... I I like the eerie quality. I was kind of like on board with the idea that, you know, this woman has... Well, she's very young. She's very beautiful. Everyone wants her beauty. Everyone wants to um, be the person to walk into a room and just shine and have everyone turn to her and everyone... Ogle at her the way she's doing Uh, But it was just a bit I don't know It was an interesting motif of death and beauty Death without beauty You know, having not been able to live without beauty um, Death or killing in the name of beauty But I just I don't know I understand it portrays a cutthroat business Spoiler alert Jesse The um, main character played by L-, L-, L. Fanning had to die because she was too beautiful and too innocent. Um, but personally, I think it could have portrayed the same story uh, or the sort of rendered the same message with less gore. Um, it reminded me a bit of the legend of um, Elizabeth Battery, uh, the noble woman from Hungary, who used to bathe
1: that is in... Ast- that is actually one of the reference points that Refin talks about. Yes. Talks about the
0: film. Yes. She used to bathe in blood of virgins to preserve her youth. Um it makes me think like something um, you know, someone like jo- John Crawford would do if she still had you know if she knew about it and she didn't had to get away with it. Um I don't know, I just felt like I felt physically sick. When the film ended, uh, I understand it, it it was kind of the whole point. You know, cinema is meant to make people feel things. Uh, it's just not often that you find films that want to make you throw up. Um, the second half of the film made me think of um, Jean Le Godard's weekend. Uh, it has similar elements that are meant to shock and stir things in people. Uh, I personally feel it's slightly lazy to shock people to just make a point in, in such a sort of uncooked way. But that's just me. Uh, I'm old-fashioned. Um, but yeah, I want to know more about um, the director. You, uh, you seem to be quite a fan.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen his Danish work um like the the Pusher trilogy, he did another thing called Fear X and another thing called Bleeder. Um but everything after Valhalla Rising, um I've seen so Valhalla Rising, Bronson, Drive, Only God Forgives, and uh the Neon Demon. I haven't actually got around to watching his Amazon TV series yet. Um, his thirteen hour T V series. Uh too too old to die young. Um Mm-hmm. But I, last year I went to uh, Cinema Riccivato in Bologna and I went to a talk with Nicholas rindin Uh where he sat down and spoke about his streaming service um, by NWR where he kind of uncovers all like lost like exploitation films, like films that have kind of, there's maybe a reason why these films aren't that well known. Um, so... I, th- I think when you start thinking about Refin in those kind of terms about what his relationship to cinema is, it kind of makes sense as to why you have a film like Only God Forgives or The Neon Demon or Bronson or um, uh, that sequence in Drive where you have these like mass explosions of violence with, like juxtaposed with the the visuals that you get um, I will link to in the show notes an interview he did after Drive came out, Um interview with, uh, I think it was Mubi, it's on YouTube, I'll link to it, um, where he talks about his struggles when he was growing up, that he was very dyslexic, um, and he had a um, struggle with the uh, relationship between sound and images, um, which kind of came to a head when he saw... Uh, when he was 14 uh, when he saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Toby Hooper's um, masterpiece um, I don't know if you've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre no but um, I I
0: mean it's its one of those films that everyone has heard about
1: ev- everyone has heard about yeah so I don't want to go into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in too much detail because it, it's going to give away a lot of things that are really worth watching um, when you're watching it for the first time, but needless to say, it's a very visceral experience uh, watching that film. There are images in it that are very shocking and um, they leave they have a lasting impact. So when you start thinking about that, it kind of makes sense when you watch a refid film and you think, oh, well, it kind of makes sense that he saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the age of 14 because no one else, uh, you know, would do this unless they had done that. Um... Which is why we have those sequences in, in The Neon Demon. Um, like, it is there, I think, to kind of just, dis- for me personally, the, what I get out of it is to kind of shock you out of the trance that you've been stuck in. Especially with The Neon Demon, like the soundtrack, for example, the cinematography, like, it is all there just to kind of transfix you. Um, I don't know if you've got that kind of impression from the first half of the film
0: i really liked the 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 primary color scheme i liked the cinematography i thought it was incredible very crisp uh and i also liked the direction um i yeah i was sold by the style of it and uh, same uh, same as with drive it does have a look to it that you just you're drawn in and i think it yeah it captures you and then it shocks you to your very core which is why i felt physically ill once i finished watching it
1: it was not it
0: was not 100 expected i didn't expect to see all that unraveled towards the end i thought that was a bit too much
1: much yeah like with so i mean you could call it schlock exploitation um those kind of films they're kind of made to be divisive and like Raffin, Raffin, what he does is he indulges in in all these kind of impulses, you know, to portray you know these hypnotic images, and then, you know, hit you with some shocking violence. You know, you know when you saw Drive, you know, have that irreversible sequence, um, in the elevator. Yes. I'm talking when he when he stops on the guy's head. Um, have you seen Irreversible, Gaspar Noyer? No. No. no.
0: Um.
1: So that's that's another film that kind of shocks you with violence, and kind of make and has this very moral uh, question hanging over it. And Refin very much does the same kind of thing. Um,
0: I thought it was interesting that he yeah, said so shocks. Shocks, but was it shock exploitation?
1: Shock, 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 shock exploitation.
0: Sh-shock, shock interesting word because yeah. i uh in in my next um sort of whatever whatever happened to baby jane there's a lot of something something exploitation coming right up so interesting yeah. parallel
1: yeah um so like in in this i was saying it was like in this like in an, in an if God forgives, he kind of thrusts the violence in the audience's face. You know that that you know they they can revel in the fantastic visuals and the metaphorical storytelling, but at the end of the day, they have to see the ugly side too. Um, and I think that's where he's going with the neon demon. Um, so. Before I I talk about the film in terms of plot, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on terms of like Jesse as a character or any of the side characters or anything like that.
0: Um, to be fair, every every I mean the characters they all seemed a bit like robots or maybe extraterrestrial. I was watching Al Fanning and I was thinking of her role in um, How to Talk to Girls at Parties where she's actually uh, an, a shape-shifting alien from outer space. And it kind of given me that eerie quality of, of her performance, and it was impossible for me to relate to that and to sort of identify or sort of sympathize with her.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of get what you mean. I mean, when she's introduced, she's she's naive. You know, Christina Hendricks refers to her as a deer in headlights. Um, you know, she's, she's gone to LA to make money after her parents die, you know, so we're led to believe, um, at one point she says to, um, Dean, the guy that's kind of likes her, um, you know, when one of her few actual times where she gets to repeat more than three words, um, she says, I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't write, no real talent, but I'm pretty and I can make money off pretty, um. And I think that's very much where the, what the film kind of latches onto is that it's not interested in what she can say or what she can do; it's very much interested in her looks.
0: Yeah, which, um,
1: is, which is why Ruby, Gigi, and Sarah take so much of an interest in her, especially Ruby, uh, yeah. played by Gina Malone. Um, so we have like these um, after she kind of had these these photo shoots, um, where they start to reveal something about her that's kind of about herself that's been awakened um so that the scene for example where she is painted gold um it starts with her very meek and scared vulnerable naked but as she is kind of lavishly painted um almost ritualistically she is adored like aphrodite i kind of thought it was very much like aphrodite kind of just being adored like her and she she becomes almost empowered by that you can kind of see it upon her face that she kind of Something is awakened inside her that she almost pos- ends up possessing her own power of beauty. Um, so what happens then is this kind of gets her led to her being cast in a fashion runway shoot. Um, the runway sequence where she's tested, you know, we as the audience we don't see her, we don't see Jesse's body, um, we only see it in a mid shot. Um, we don't see the rest of her. Um, we we see her a, cl- a close up, um, and we are briefly glimpsed seeing her, or or as shown as a reaction from from uh, what's the name uh, the name of the guy Sar Sarko, um, and then during the performance or just you know what whatever that is the the triangles where she's looking at herself in the mirror, you know that that is a very much a transformation sequence for her. Yeah, you know, the mirrors end up depicting her vanity you know Dean is then discarded and Sarno turns around and says that she is a diamond in a sea of glass
0: yes Um, and then she goes
1: yeah so then yeah yeah so that I think that the triangles that we kind of see these hallucinations they they tease the occult and the witches and and what Ruby ends up becoming um where she's revealed to be and you i kind of feel that they are placed there by ruby to kind of protect her from hank and then to bring her into her grasp mm. um i've now referred to hank um played by keanu reeves and i got a message from uh danny <laughs> when keanu reeves's name popped up in the credits where she says are you fucking kidding me um i was kind Love of excited Heart to to see eyes. him on the
0: credits
1: um, what did you think of Keanu Reeves' performance?
0: I mean, he's he's great no matter what he does. Um, but he put, in this film he plays this um creep, creep, yeah. Um, sort of like predatory, pe- oldish kind of man who's running a motel and he's probably renting the rooms to underage girls um he makes uh, an observation that in 2014 no in two fourteen room 214 which is next door to um jesse's room there's a 13 year old girl who's great looking and then two fourteen
1: needs to be seen yeah 214 needs
0: to be seen uh which is yeah like quite cringy um and later we we hear something happening in the room next door. We don't know exactly what's happened, but it's enough that Jessie wants to run away from it and she runs right into the open arms of Ruby.
1: Yeah, and what a character Ruby is.
0: Yeah, what a Um, character.
1: Initially, a shoulder to kind of cry on and maybe to warn, but is then revealed to have her own vices um she adores uh Jessie's beauty so much so that she wants to sleep with her and and almost tries to rape her um no she tries she to tries, but she... Did, she does try to rape her sorry yeah why, why, <laughs> yeah so if she does try to rape her doesn't know almost about it and then there's the sequence with the necrophilia um yeah where she gets off of touching that that naked woman she has her own vices and in and we are clearly seeing a woman that is um enamored by beauty, whether it's dead or alive, and kind of feeds off of that energy as it were like she fant- when she's you know making out with a dead body, I don't really want to go into it too much detail, but when she's making out with that dead body, you know she's fantasizing about uh uh jesse jesse yeah that, but yeah jesse yeah
0: um, th- yeah, it kind of lost me from from that point onwards, I was a bit like uncomfortable
1: when yeah so when when jesse moves to the mansion is when the kind of the film kind of lost you a little bit
0: yeah i mean i like the idea of the mansion i made some notes about the mansion it kind of made me think of sansa boulevard with you know the gothic element to it stuffed animals dead dead death around um and this lady who's like you know lurking around in the shadows
1: she dies in a swimming pool
0: and yeah, in the swimming pool, of course,
1: um which is uh, I thought it so, was quite a
0: reference to sense boulevard
1: yeah it, it I, might I, not I, be I, but... Yeah, I honestly thought that as well no i i I do think Refin is i do think he's smart enough to know what he's referencing there, um like so Jessie at the mansion, she's punished for a narcissism. That's what she becomes. She becomes very narcissistic and very much within herself. Um, Gigi and Sarah, they both crave her looks, her power. And after she's killed and, and subsequently eaten, um, they shower in her blood. Uh, Ruby, the way I read Ruby is that she wanted sexual gratification and her beauty as well. And kind of that youthful energy that she brings. Um, she she bathes in, bathes in her blood. Um, And then we get this sequence, which (sighs) I still can't put my finger on what it means. And I'm hoping that because I'm talking to a woman that she may be able to help me out a little bit. Um,
0: Which sequence are you referring to? I'm
1: referring to uh, Gina Malone crawling on a wooden floor in the moonlight, opening her legs. Yeah, I don't know what that was all about. out.
0: It, it, I, I don't know. It made me think of that scene from uh, Game of Thrones, but I just don't know what that was in reference to. Um,
1: I mean, I kind, I kind of got. I mean, the way the blood kind of comes out, it almost, it kind of irks to what The Shining was really saying about the elevator and the blood, and yeah, also you know, carry to carry to some extent. And the fact that she's lying in moonlight as well, in a full moon, um, you know, monthly's menstrual cycle, you know, there's too much in that. And I don't... I, even though yeah, I said think sure I think that Refin reading, is smart I'm enough. I'm not sure
0: if that reading comes in... in uh, uh, ties in with the rest of what we've seen in the film. Um, yeah. I think another way of looking at it is like the predatory... I don't know vagina the 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 really evil vagina that is uh, like yeah i know what you mean you know absorbing and then releasing
1: maybe, the blood maybe that she's eating.
0: yeah probably maybe
1: rebirth something along those lines um Glen- yeah detox we, <laughs> yeah very much like you know it's like this ritual in the moon in this full moonlight um, yes and yeah, I even though I said that I think Refn is smart enough to know what he's referencing in terms of the swimming pool, I'm not entirely sure he knows what he's doing with that particular shot. Yeah, I, I feel don't know. That shot dis- is way too loaded to. Yeah, I think it's too loaded for s the, for the film. Um, and I know there's a lot. Like, it. I. Don't, I think it's too loaded in terms of those to show the actual intention in that. I think he. I don't know. I don't know really. But then we, we get this shot of her kind of lying in Jesse's grave in the sunlight topless um, surrounded by flowers. Yeah. Kind of implying that... Maybe implying that this has happened before. And then we have the sequence afterwards with Gigi and Sarah at the photo shoot, which is, I think, the sequence you're referring to when you say you're physically ill. Yes. Um, where... We get Gigi becoming ill from eating Jessie and throwing up an eyeball and then cutting herself open saying that she needs to get her out if i remember rightly and then sarah picks up the eyeball and eats it herself um the way Thank i read that, that is that that's all right I uh, no problem um <laughs> the way i read that is that throughout the film Gigi is referred to as a woman that has had her looks manufactured you know throughout the film she is referred to as a woman that her beauty is created by a doctor it's not natural and the way i read that is that Jessie's beauty is very much cursed um pure beauty which is what Jessie was isn't allowed to survive but you know it's eaten up by the manufactured very much so eaten up by the manufactured but Gigi with her very much manufactured looks and her, her perfect everything but created by a plastic surgeon you know her purity is lost and then in such she is then poisoned by the purity of jesse it's kind of how i read that i don't know if you agree with that reading i probably do i haven't actually given
0: it much thought uh other than being physically repulsed Uh... by it but it might yeah yeah Yeah. i think it yeah i Um, think it's fair to say that
1: so yeah, I mean I I touched on it first but before, but Cliff Martinez's score is fantastic. Um it's one of the best scores he's ever done. Um this guy that did drive, he also did only God forgives, he, you know, he's very much worked with Refin in the past, and I think that his score for Neon Demon is his best work. Um utterly transfixing, it's so good. Um the cinematography from uh Natasha Breyer, who's also Danish, um, is like I said, hypnotic, it's beautiful. It has this sheen, like, sheen as in it's kind of expected of a film set in the fashion world. Like, it's kind of got this feel to it that it kind yes. of belongs in that world.
0: That's why it made me um, think of Nocturnal Animals, which is directed by a uh, fashion designer, Tom, Tom Ford.
1: Yeah, which I haven't seen.
0: Oh my god, it's gorgeous.
1: I, I, haven't, seen, I haven't seen either of Tom Ford's films. Um, I've seen a lot of his photography, but I have never seen any of his films.
0: Uh, single man um, is very hard. It's heartbreaking. Nocturnal animals is is very very well made. I thought, and I'm a big uh, Amy Adams fan. I think she's brilliant in whatever she does.
1: Yeah, with um, so with that kind of fashion look. I mean, there's an interview that she did with the Guardian. Well, I would not say interview. She wrote an article for the Guardian around right about the same time the film came out, which I will as well link to in the show notes, um, where she talks about the film. Um, one of the things she, she says is that Refin wanted the film to kind of look like a photo book, and I think it very much accomplished that. It's some of the visuals in it are, are just utterly stunning, and I saw this film twice in the cinema, and I I'm so happy to have seen it twice in the cinema because it, it's utterly beautiful. Um, yeah. Uh, I wish I could I share a, your enthusiasm.
0: Uh,
1: had... <laughs> <laughs> So, did you kind of get the occult stuff before it was made explicit? Did you get any of that? Mm,
0: I didn't think much about it, but yeah, I, I got, I got it. I got the uh, evil sisterhood between those two, two, three ladies: Ruby, well, before, Gigi, before and. Before it was
1: actually revealed. Before it was actually revealed, what was going on?
0: No. I mean, you kind of see the guy, them just... three together before before uh, Jesse comes in, and you kind of see them like clustered together. Yeah. So you kind of yeah. feel that no, I, she's I... she's a newbie in town. They will always kind of look to her that she because you see you see them being jealous of her from from the get go. So you kind of know that they kind of they're not happy about
1: her being around. It's very much a story you've seen before so you know what's going to happen kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The only other questions I had really was, I mean, did the violence remove you? I mean, we've answered that question. And the other one was, were you disgusted? And we've also answered that question.
0: Yes, very much so. (laughs)
1: Um... So yeah, all in all,
0: um, did you
1: actually like the film?
0: No, no,
1: no. Okay,
0: I didn't. Uh, I mean, you were you were looking forward to it I didn't dislike it. Cause... I didn't dislike it. Dislike it. I just. I wish. I mean, I mean, I've seen it now. I know what it's about. Uh, I appreciate the craft. Uh, and the way the story is told, so th- the style is beautiful, like you said. The music is good. Um, I just, yeah, I think it went a bit too far.
1: So I mean, because like last week, you were very much looking forward to it because you, you know, you said that kermode very much likes it, and he did give it yeah. four stars out of five on the Guardian. Yeah. Um, did. Are you, but i mean I,
0: kermode loves i mean she, kermode thinks that the exorcist is the best movie ever made
1: yeah that <laughs> is also true um he's also like a lot of people seem to forget this about kermode to kind of derail the conversation a little bit but a lot of people seem to forget that he he's a he's a horror nerd
0: he is a horror um, nerd yes like, he loves like not
1: many people yes i mean not many people seem to kind of yeah. know that yeah um like yeah. he does his five live show with simon mayo and rants about the sex of the city films and rants about transformers but they they don't seem to know that he's a massive horror nerd yes um that has has worked with you know kim newman on on various projects and is and is oh. very much very very well versed in horror i mean i've read i've read Absolutely. Uh, two of kermode's books and, and, so I think that because of his background in horror like I kind of get why he likes The Neon yeah. Demon. He um, loves Raw too. Oh, uh, Raw is fantastic. Yeah he, he, I think he called he called Raw the best film of 2017.
0: Oh god. Um
1: I so... must see it
0: I guess but I must sort of yeah. self medicate with a big dose of vodka before. <laughs>
1: to 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 basically uh let everybody know we will be talking about raw at some point in the next few weeks we have it planned scheduled down um we don't currently have auditioned put down yet but oh come on finding we don't uh, need to do do that at some point uh Takeshi Miike's audition for those that don't know is a a completely amazing film of course Um, (laughs) <laughs> needs to be seen to be believed, and I think it is. I think honestly, audition. Um, with what what I say about the Neon Demon Raw needing to be watched because of they do something different, and um, because it it it's worth having a a voice about them, in my opinion. Anyway, I think audition is very much the in- ultimate form of this point. Um, same with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is that these films are very much what they are. And I think it is worth having a voice about those films. Um, so for those who haven't seen Audition or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, please, please go and see them. And Danny, we will be seeing these two at some point. But you can talk to me with anything you want, so I don't mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, we now move on to Danny's four-hour... Uh, no. five hour, six hour. Um, um I wish. I wish. Ted talk on Ted talk on Betty Davis and Joe crawford So I think. <laughs>
0: oh God. Uh, how do I begin? Um, well, the feud between these two quote unquote old broads is so legendary that um, a TV mini series was made, was called Feud, and it was centered around the making of whatever happened to Baby Jane. Um... So I didn't, I didn't, I kind
1: of knew about a feud between them, but, and then I also, I also know, I knew something about an Oscar incident between the two, but this is only purely based around other things that I've been told. Uh, My background with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford is that I've seen... All About Eve starring Betty Davis, and I've seen Mildred Pierce starring Joan Crawford. Everything else I, I haven't. Um, so this is kind of. Okay. What's the word? Very much, very much an introduction to them both. And then I find out this about this feud, which has me very, very intrigued.
0: Okay. Um, but we, we but, do have to
1: talk about the film at some point.
0: Uh, we will have to. We will talk about the film at some point. I'm sure we will but just a, a small note before there was betty and joan feud there was a betty and miriam feud um that's miriam hopkins we should talk about more about this in a future episode i will make you watch a lot of miriam hopkins films as 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 i promised we might even dedicate a whole bonus episode to betty i think who was an incredible woman um who i absolutely love and admire but uh back to baby jane uh, this, like we said, it's a legendary production, it's directed by Robert Aldrich. It was considered the f- first of a whole new subgenre, hag horror, also known as Psycho Biddy, Exploitation, Grand Dame Guignol. Um, for those who need mem- memory refresh, uh, Grand Guignol was the French theatre of horror, very realistic, explicit style of horror, a precursor to today's Splatter films. Well, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane isn't a blood-gushing horror like, say, the Neon Demon, but it does present us with quite a few elements of the horror, gothic horror genre. A short synopsis, we have Blanche Blanche and Jane Hudson, two sisters who hate each other so much they cannot live without one another. Jane was famous as a ten-odd-year-old. Blanche was famous at a twenty-something year old. Now they're old both. They both old and faded, and they have to live with it. The film is based on a novel by Henry Farrell and is directed by Robert Aldrich, who also directed *Kiss Me Deadly*, uh, *The Dirty Dozen*, um, *Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte*, which is also considered as part of the exploitation subgenre. Nick, what did you think of? whatever happened to baby jane
1: so over the last few weeks intentionally or not i haven't made my i haven't actually figured out if this was actually intentional but i've watched loads of films with the same kind of recurring motif um so i'm just gonna list off some films and i kind of want you to kind of maybe name what that recurring theme is so we've got showgirls basic instinct all about eve fatal attraction jennifer's body a girl walks home alone at night the lure the neon demon and whatever happened to baby jane so all of these films <laughs> are centered around women that are more Ah, uh, i don't know what the white word to say is unhinged Unhinged, maybe. Perhaps.
0: Um, I
1: didn't know. Maybe I didn't know what the term "bunny boiler" meant until I watched mm. Fatal Attraction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well,
0: let's just say that they're either scheming or or murderous or something. In yeah, the
1: or or they, yeah, they have, you know, there's a taste for blood or something. Yeah, that, and it's very sexual in that. Um, very no. sexual. I was going to say, like with most of them, it's very sexual. With this one, on the other hand, we see the aftermath, as it were.
0: Yeah. Of,
1: and we see the the psychological damage between the two kind of unravel after years and years of stewing, kind yeah, of set so- off by an event by thought the TV episode like tv showing the old movies kind of yeah. sets off the it's kind of the 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 spark that lights the torch paper that sets the whole thing ablaze um yeah
0: okay um it just made me think <laughs> um, that um whatever happened to baby jane could be like a continuation of whether someone like gg or ruby uh had grown old And now they're at each other's throats for past shenanigans. Yeah. From, yeah. yeah. So it would be like, later on, the next episode, what happened to those guys? Because it's basically (laughs) mostly about fading beauty and and at the end of everyone gets old and the way they deal with getting old.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean so like when i'm watching the film it, it first i mean i'm kind of led to believe that the damage done to blanche is undeserved um blanche played by Joan crawford and that it's all down to the it is all purely down to the spiral mentaling mental well-being of jane uh betty davis um but then the reveal um which had been planted i mean let's not forget that it was planted right at the beginning Yes. And I probably should have probably should have seen it coming, but I was kind of too wrapped up after the events afterwards. Kind of comes and then it's kind of heartbreaking. It doesn't excuse Betty Davis's J- Jane's actions at all. It doesn't excuse them. I mean, she murdered the maid. Um, yeah, she flat out volleyed kicked i mean it was an impressive kick i mean i've seen kicks done by footballers that are uh, uh, less impressive uh, she kicks blacks <laughs> in the head and i honestly was
0: you have to remember that she has oh. mental health issues
1: no she does have mental health issues i know that but when that happened i was astounded i was not expecting that she flat out oh, it was, oh, flat there's out a legend the there's a like,
0: legend saying oh. that it, she might even have kicked poor john crawford in the in in the ribs but we don't know if that really happened okay um (laughs) there's there's stories there's rumors and there's legends based on this production because it was it was in itself legendary
1: um yeah i it like i said it doesn't excuse her actions but when you get that final bit and there's the line that betty davis and the betty davis gives and how she delivers it of saying you mean we could have been friends i it's so heartbreaking yes and the way she delivers it and the whole, whole performance in that final sequence is one of a child coming out to play and almost unaware of the actions going on around her and she's clearly broken at that point um so, like you know the the performances of the two are fantastic, but in different ways. Um, like I said, Betty Davis is unhinged, she's deranged, she's psychotic, but there's a childish person there hidden inside there that, that wasn't allowed to exist when she was a child star and is yes. begging to come through, and you see that in her performance with Joan Crawford. her performance is more desperate, is more weak, pleading, sympathetic. Um, she isn't given a lot to do physically apart from maybe climbing down some stairs Um, like she's uh, it's very much all in her face Um, and she does give a very sympathetic performance but i could tell that there was something brimming underneath the surface and again that is a, a, a tribute to her performance and of her character um, the film itself is shot very well. The house almost becomes like that of Norman Bates's house. Yes, it kind of yes. made me laugh that the next door neighbor's name was Mrs. Bates. Um, <laughs> that made me laugh and it's kind of claustrophobic and gothic you know the, you can kind of you kind of feel that there are secrets ready to pour out from the walls um and, there and then are. when we get to the beach, yeah, and when we get to the beach and the film opens up, you know the emotional the emotion and the effect of their actions of both of their actions on the out, uh, basically on the outside world becomes more apparent and we end up seeing the actual effects you know, the the, the maid getting murdered for example, you know, we actually see a, a newspaper report that and people talking about it um the film is, is darkly funny uh, I did message you at one point saying this film is fucking hilarious um and it is, but it's also very heartbreaking and it's quite shocking. And for what it is and for when it came out, is very, I'm very impressive. Very, very impressed with it. Um. So that's kind of it done for me. I kind of have a couple of questions that I want to ask. Okay. That you can Kind of take and then run with for the next four hours um so <laughs> i'm not gonna do to that oscar to you ins- <laughs> uh, we'll, do, we'll do a
0: special uh, episode of betty davis and john crawford um i think yeah um we will
1: be talking about betty davis soon i know that for certain we will again so um anyway i um, i alluded to the oscar incident between the two and i kind of want to know more about that i also kind of want to know if there was this feud did actually either of them enjoy filming it filming this and Uh yes why on earth would two people hate each other so much come to work together on a film
0: oh dear i
1: mean we don't really have any modern examples i mean we I might think,
0: have to do it in 4 hours if you want to, the answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> I, um, mean, I
1: think maybe the modern the modern comparison uh, maybe is i could do that is, too is we the, can talk is, about is it is the rock is the rock and vin diesel
0: no um,
1: like ugh, no, I really? no, I'm talking like m- modern like tiffs between actors. Are they are I mean, feud?
0: I didn't even know that they were. They had a feud.
1: Yeah, they have a they have um in their contract for I think it was uh fast, fast eight Fate of the Furious. It came out that um that they could only there's only so many punches they could take, and there's only so many punches they could give. And they also didn't share a single shot in the film, despite oh, wow. being co-leads, which is why we got the Fast and Furious spin-off Hobson Shaw, starring Vin, uh, starring The Rock and Jason Statham, and then Vin Diesel still doing his own thing in the Fast and Furious main series. Um, yeah, it's 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 just properly insane. Like it, ugh, yeah. I, I bet you never thought I'd talk about Fast and Furious on the podcast, but here we are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I honestly, I, I kind of, I really want to know more about this feud and okay. um, if you've got any more interesting tidbits on the film.
0: I've I've got loads. I've got loads. So bear with me. Um, okay. So I, I may
1: interject with some. I may interject with some actual other questions depending on what you say. Absolutely.
0: We'll absolutely. Um. I so. I'm just going to uh, where do I start? There's so much information that I have to give out. So, what was your first question?
1: Uh so the first question was um the Oscar incident.
0: Okay, so let's go. Uh I don't know if I want to start with that though. Um let's just let's just okay, let's start with that. Fine. So, you were talking about the performances in the film. Uh, and you praised both actresses, uh, and you said you, you talked about their uh, both their performances, how they sort of they were moving, and they each delivered, and they each had their own uh, thing. Um, when so, um, I just I don't know. I have to sort of rewind a bit because I need to talk a bit about the production because this was a film that nobody wanted to make this is 1961 1962 um it was actually because it was it was done on a on a shoestring and basically robert aldrich cut it in camera so basically it was done very 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 tightly so everything there was no um extra film used there was very very they i think they it was in post production for like a month um they finished it really really quickly um but before that they needed financing and they basically got uh Jack Warner to allow them to film on their on their on the on the Warner brothers lot um but basically this was 1962 both John Crawford and Betty Davis were in their 50s they were considered husbands they were no longer John Crawford and Betty Davis in the eyes of of the studios. Um, I know the studio system was kind of at the, at the end of its peak, like it was on its way out, big big time. But it was still they still had some power in Hollywood, and they still do even to this day. Um, but yeah, they thought that no one wanted to see a film with two old ladies. And when I started talking about it, I quoted two old broads, uh, and that's because, reputedly, in um, let me just find the quote. So um, while touring to promote the film, Betty Davis told one interviewer that Jack Warner didn't want to didn't want to finance the film because I wouldn't. And I quote, he said, I wouldn't give a pluck nickel for either one of those two old broads, thinking that no one would want to see it. Um, And basically, relating the story, Davis laughed at her own expense, realizing that, yes, indeed, she was in her 50s and by Hollywood standards, she was very old. Uh, However, she reportedly received a telegram from John Crawford saying, in future, please do not refer to me as an old broad. I do think that John Crawford might have been a couple of years older than Betty Davies. I'm saying I think because we don't really know the year John Crawford was born because she said it was either, either 1908 or 1906 or 1904, nobody really knows. Um. So yeah. Um, the reason they made this film was that they were both at the end of their careers and they did not have any material, they didn't have any roles, there were no meaty roles for women in their 50s in Hollywood. And then this book came out and they thought they should make it, even though they disliked each other for since the uh, like late 30s, I believe. Um, they yeah, they, they were not um, friends and they, they had a bit of a feud going on for decades. They agreed to make this film together because it was kind of the only way they could still be relevant, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that answers your question about why they made a film together. Um, the Oscar incident. Uh, Yes, Basically, the Oscar incident. During the production everyone thought this was going to be a B film. There was no budget, there was very little support in terms of marketing, in terms of publicity um planned. But when they finished, there was they start the Oscar buzz started because they thought they saw that they both both women Worked very hard, they were both very professional. Um, they didn't really argue that much, I don't think. I mean, all the stories were just marketing. Um, so the Oscar incident basically, when the Oscar nominations came through, Betty Davis was had received a nomination for this film, but John Crawford had not, and John Crawford was very, 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 very vain. And she was, she could not stand the fact that Betty Davis got nominated and she didn't. Um And also, Betty Davis didn't really care about sugarcoating anybody. So I think Betty Davis was the sort of person who didn't, who might have been a bit vain, but she was, she was very, working very hard and she very eager to receive all the accolades. And apparently uh she'd never uh, complimented John Crawford over her own performance. Um, so when the nomination came in and John Crawford was left out, she made it. So basically, she tried her bestest to outshine Betty Davis when 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 the Oscar night came. So she went to all the other nominees and called them up and said, "If you do not want to attend," Can I receive the award on your behalf? Um, and Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft agreed to let her receive the, the, the Academy uh, on, on their behalf. Um, Anne Bancroft won for the Miracle Worker, I think, which I have not seen yet. Uh, and of course Dawn went and received the Oscar on behalf of Anne Bancroft and Smirking and and being very very, um, yeah, not nice to Betty Davis. Um, like I said, this was towards their end, the end of both their careers, and Betty Davis knew that if she didn't win an Oscar for this, she would never she would not win an Oscar again. Um, yeah, just um, a note regarding. Betty Davis and her Oscar wins. Um, basically, she won in 1935 uh, for a film called Dangerous. Um, but uh, I, I feel I must make a parallel to here with Betty Davis and John Crawford and their early Hollywood careers uh there are references to both their films early films uh, at the start of the film at the start of whatever happened to baby J. you see what you said at the beginning and you see the screening of um, young john crawford on television and then she starts thinking about what she could have done and what that shot could have been that's the film that's a shot from a film called sadie mckee uh it's a pre-code film and there's also a shot of a Betty Davis film from 1933 called Ex Lady. Betty started off with Warner Brothers um, in early 1930s, who they cast her in bit parts, bit films, B films. They really didn't know what her strength as a performer was until she begged and pleaded to be cast as Mildred in a film called Of Human Bondage. She was incredible in that film. She was so good that they didn't. When when the nomination, the Oscar nominations came in, and she did not get nominated, um, because Jack Warner lobbied against her getting a nomination. Uh, there was a, a petition signed by lots of people in Hollywood for a write-in vote. She was then officially added onto the list of Oscar nominees for that year, nineteen thirty-four, but then she lost to Claudette Colbert. For it happened one night. So, Betty won the next year for a, le- a less deserving role, which was a less taxing role, not much less deserving, uh, dangerous. Um, so, I think that must have been just the first Constellation Oscar that we all know and love these days. So, over the years, the, the Oscars got very good at making amends for past mistakes, but I think that was that's a conversation we can continue to in, in a future episode. Um. So and yeah, uh, Betty Davis had won before for Jezebel and for oh God, yeah, Dangerous and Jezebel. So that she had two, and she would have had she won for for Baby Jane, she would have been the first person, um, in history to have three Oscars for Best Leading I did read Actress.
1: That. Yeah, I did read that. Yeah.
0: So um, it would it would have been. An incredible thing for her to achieve this at in her fifties. It would have meant that women in her fi- in their fifties could still win Oscars. Um well we know that women in their fifties can still win win Oscars because Brenna Zelviger was fifty-four, I think, she just won for Judy. So I think we've we've seen a bit of an improvement in that category, but in the sixties it was very, very difficult. Um but yeah, ba- back to Baby Jane, which is the only collaboration between Betty and Joan. It was dramatised to the point where the legend is now taken for a fact. Um, I just, just
1: want to take, take a moment and say thank you for everything, because that was really good, the way you um, <laughs> went through that history. Uh,
0: um so. i'm only halfway through
1: <laughs> no i know you are i know i know i know uh, and i know at some point we are uh, in future episodes we will be talking about betty davis again so i'm, I'm really hoping you pace yourself okay um, i i have paced myself <laughs> i have this this is a marathon i'm not, not a going to
0: i'm not gonna i'm not gonna talk about betty davis to the point where i've exhausted everything i had known about her uh don't you worry um, I was just gonna say that I'm not linger. I'm gonna. I'm not going to linger much more on this. Um, there was no boxing match between the two ladies right before each and every take. Like it Wait, was repeated. There was a
1: boxing match.
0: No, there was no boxing match. Uh, there. There's... Wait, that
1: that was that was an actual rumor that there was a boxing match between. No, the two. there
0: was a rumor that they hated each other to the point where they were shouting and they. Yeah. Uh, there was also a rumor that um. Jo- Joan put, weighed herself with heavy rocks in her pockets for the scene where she had to be carried by Betty from the bed, if you remember. Um, but I want to I want to talk a bit more about the approach that bo- both actresses brought to their roles, which is why I think Betty was nominated for an Oscar and Joan wasn't. Um, Henry Farrell, who wrote Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the novel... Uh, apparently, visit, he visited the set one day and he said, "My, with regards to Betty, my God, you look just exactly as I picked a baby Jane to be. Um, I think, I'm not exactly sure, but apparently what Betty wanted to do with this, uh, I have a quote, what I had in mind, no professional makeup man would have dared to put on me once told me he was afraid that if he did what I wanted, he might never work again. Betty Davis did her own makeup for this role. Um, I felt Jay never washed her face, just added another layer of makeup each day. Um I definitely it,
1: got that impression. Yeah, like, so... The way her makeup is kind of on her face, it, it, I mean... I mean it, she say, you say she was about 50 years old when she filmed this I mean she looks much much haggard and much much older yeah and
0: it it, it looks, was because uh, of the makeup and the very unflattering yeah. um um lighting I don't know if you remember if you if you picked up on it it was I think it was towards the beginning where she finds the the songs that she did with her father and in, in, in when she was a child and she looks at the at herself in the mirror from sort of a few feet away, and she starts to sing, and she's got the bow on her head, and then she comes closer to the mirror, and then the mirror hits the light hits her, and you see her face, and she's very very haggard, and she looks very very old, and and wrinkly. Yeah, she's
1: she's she's like if you left Norma Desmond in the sun for, yes. for a bit too long, yes. you know.
0: Yes, and um, Apparently there's, there's
1: certain very very much aspects of Betty DeVavis' performance that made me think of, of Gloria Swanson in uh, Sunset Boulevard. I think um, there
0: are lots of references to Sunset Boulevard in, in this. Yeah, there, there um,
1: are, definitely.
0: I think the 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 baby Jane Jane, Jane Hudson, I think she was she was modelled after Norma Desmond. Um apparently I don't know if this is true but apparently there's been lots of women that looked like baby Jane Hudson like old Jane Hudson um, that would just cruise the Hollywood Boulevard that had been employed once for actresses now they had faded from from the limelight and had nowhere to go and they had still had that idea that they will they would put this makeup on to look beautiful not really realizing being in this bubble where they live in the past and they don't really realize that it doesn't look good on them anymore. Apparently that scene where she goes to the mirror and see she was supposed to start screaming in horror, but what she could only do, she just could she only put her hands over her face and she started sobbing. And I thought that was much more effective than if she'd been screaming. Um Also, so yeah, many people thought she went overboard with that makeup because she put it on herself. Um, But she, if we have to think that she portrayed someone living in the past, someone who was clinging onto a long faded youth, um, definitely with mental health problems. Um, What I like about her, and I think that's why she got the nomination, was never afraid, she was never afraid to go the extra mile for her roles. She was not as vain as John Crawford was. And I'll get to that in a minute. She was never considered a great beauty. Joan Crawford has always been considered she was mostly about the looks. Betty Davis was more about the craft. Um,
1: I can honestly, from, from, what, from what I've seen from her and the two performances I've seen of her in All About Eve and in this is that I can tell that she is more about like you said, the craft than about the looks, and um, I know in the past you you know you did ask me who who I preferred between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, as if it's you know some kind of football rivalry
0: well, but, there was um, some kind of no, football I, rivalry
1: <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I no, I mean like as in like are you are you t- are you team Edward or are you team Jacob you know like I think <laughs> this was like thing. it was like the Beatles like, and the I Rolling
0: mean, Stones before the Beatles and the Rolling Stones became famous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean I'm I'm team Edward all the way so team Betty Davis. Um <laughs> Yeah, me too. Um yeah. So like even, um, and I'm saying that just from the two performances I've seen of Betty Davis so Um yeah.
0: she was I think th- the idea that she wasn't a great beauty I I I contest that because I've seen the- I've seen her young and I've seen her in-, in films like Jezebel where she's absolutely stunning and Dark Victory and now voyager which is incredible i mean i urge you to watch now voyager it's just so incredible and she's i don't think she's ever been sexier than in, in now voyager uh, it's incredible Which we have planned we, we have, have plan. planned i can't wait i can't wait um so yeah i i think the idea that she was never a beauty did her both a disservice and a great service so she thought she had this. Handicap and she had this complex that she was never beautiful enough at the same time the the service that it did to her It allowed her to be a great character actress She was she went full method before method was a thing in the film marked woman from 1937 When her character is supposed to show up with her face all bandaged bandaged up she went to a real doctor and asked to be bandaged like a real victim of assault would be not like the one like the way she would have been done by someone in the studio. It was important to, for, if it was important for her character to look a certain way. She would do her own makeup. She did her own makeup in 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 this film. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, as well as in um of Human Bondage, of which I spoke a bit earlier. Um, it's an incredible film which basically made her. What she she basically it was the the breakout role that for her Because before then she had all these tiny parts with Warner Brothers and then and then she went and then this and it was just it Shut her fame into a strat of stratosphere Um, She was always very interested in giving a realistic performance and I believe that's why she clashed with John Crawford John Crawford has always been about the looks and she was often quoted as saying When people go to see a John Crawford picture, they expect to see John Crawford. In this, she plays an invalid who hasn't been outside for 20 years, and yet she's gorgeous. As much as I like John Crawford as I do, I enjoy her films very much. Um, I believe she was quite inflexible and old school, and she wouldn't be able to move in with the tides. Which is why people nowadays tend to remember her for the, the, the caricatures, the impressions... The eyebrows, and not the performance that she she had. I mean, you've seen her in Mildred Pierce, and she's she's good. She's very good. When she's good, she's incredible.
1: Yeah, um, no, no, she is she is incredible in Mildred Pierce.
0: Yes, um, and she had. Uh, I mean, there was sudden fear was an incredible, and she you could see her range there as well. But it's just, it's a, it's a pity that she didn't she she was always a star she was not she was not a multifaceted character actress like Betty was uh I liked Whatever Happened to Baby Jane I think it's a good film uh I think it stood the test of time although it had those elements that you've pinpointed that were quite amusing for for a modern audience to I mean I don't think it was meant to be funny um, but I think. Oh
1: no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying that you know, seeing a seeing a woman get kicked in the head is not is funny. I'm no, just but the, the dynamic between and, them
0: and... is is rather amusing. I think. Uh... I think. I
1: think. Yeah, I think it is intentionally amusing that it's 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 played off as it's it's funny in that way. I think in the same kind of way where in in Psycho, uh, Norman Bates, for example, the way he kind of interacts with. The other characters and his awkwardness is kind of blackly funny. Yes, until you yes. realise, you know, you know, his mum's dead. So I think, you know, on the same kind of level, it's like you have this horror in the background of, you know, of abuse and and what have you. But the way the interactions are and the way the characters are, you know, you you, you kind of it is it is quite blackly funny. Um, like I said, very yeah. much like um Norman Bates in, in Psycho.
0: Yeah. Um uh, what, uh yeah, it's just I thought it had film noir elements every now and then. It had a bit of horror, uh gothic elements of um the sort of decay and age and what age does to people and like loss of beauty. Um I I think it also shows in in a slightly unhinged way how fame or want of fame, hunger for fame affects people. Um, I think it was an interesting experiment to pair it with the Neon Demon because it shows the beginning and the end of what might be a career in show business and what the cost of it. Um, it did very well at the box office, uh, which was an incredible feat because no one expected it to, to, to be such a success. It recouped what it had spent, uh, under production only in 11 days. Um... Like I said, both Davis and Crawford they were, they just jumped to the project because it was the best script they had read in I don't know how many years. Um, As the show Feud suggests and I think I I did a bit of research on it and I think it's true to say that when they were talking about making this film, Betty Davis was uh, on Broadway uh, doing The Night of the Iguana and she had not she was not the main character in it so she had very little stage um uh, presence so she she was kind of like relegated to like second characters and for for a person for a for um a career driven person like betty davis this was not a good thing which is why i think she jumped on to this opportunity to work with someone who um she might have not probably chosen to work with. At the same time, these were still people who didn't wouldn't wouldn't retire. Both John Crawford and Betty Davis were so workaholics, I think, that they both wanted to to sort of keep working. They were both in the fifties, they were happy to be working and then just give their best performance, which you could see it on, on the film. Uh, it's imp- I think it's important to say here that by, by this point in their careers, yeah, yeah, they were considered high as has, has- been. Um, comparing them to basically like Greta Garbo and Norma Shearer, they had retired in the early nineteen forties. This was nineteen sixty. Um, both Davis and Crawford, by late fifties, they kind of they were starting to accept whatever roles came their way if they wanted to continue working. Famously, Crawford did just that, even after Baby Jane. Um, her last film was something called Trog, which I did not recommend you see, unless Sorry, you are very, very bored that? and you have the Trog. I, I, T-R-O-G.
1: T I'm, I'm, I... for Tango T-R-O-D. I, I think I have to watch T- this film. Purely oh based my god. on who Dude, is in it and the title of the film, Trog. Trog. Oh my god, I have to see yeah. this. So Trog is a 1970 British science fiction horror film directed by Freddie <sighs> Francis and starring Joan Crawford and a story about the discovery of a troglodyte or ice age caveman in 20th century England. I have to see this oh film. Oh my god, this sounds amazing. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, so basically this was the last you've opened my eyes now you've opened my eyes now (laughs) to a great to a great film uh (laughs) after after previewing trog critic roger ebert begins his assessment of the film with a question now what can you really say about a movie where joan Crawford, dressed in an immaculate beige pantsuit hunts through a cave shouting trog here trog to her pet troglodyte a scene like that surpasses absurdity, and so does this movie. I have to see this. <laughs>
0: oh, damn!
1: <laughs> this sounds amazing.
0: <laughs> no, uh, but <sighs> so basically, what happened after after this film was released and it was very well received? It recouped its losses in in ten, eleven days. It had Oscar nominations for Betty Davis. Um I think it might have won one Oscar. Uh one second. Uh it got yeah it won one Oscar it was not it was nominated it, so it was best costume costume design. Uh it was nominated for best actress in leading role best actor in a supporting role with Victor porno, who is the musician that comes in uh who wants to revive um Baby Jane's career. Um but yeah after that you would you would have expected uh actresses like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford to start receiving good scripts of good roles uh but this didn't happen um basically they wanted to use this formula this winning formula of of a film made on a on a tight budget that made great a lot of money at the box office and got oscar nominations again uh so they found another i think it was basically a book that was whatever happened to cousin charlotte um and was made into a film called hush hush sweet charlotte um john crawford was again supposed to be paired with betty davis However, oh, even,
1: even, even after all of that, they, they were going to work together again.
0: They were. <sighs> That's but insane. uh And they started working together again. Um, but because of all the, all that had happened, uh, they were like, well, what happened was that Joan Crawford was, she thought that she was mistreated and then Betty Davis was running the show because she was she was she had producer credit and she had creative control over the production. So, Joan Crawford didn't agree with all, all the changes to the script that Betty Davis was making. So, she basically started feigning sick and she checked herself into a hospital and she refused to work and she was replaced. She was replaced with Olivia de Havilland. And the film got made and uh, it did very well. Not as well as Baby Jane, but it's a, it's a good film directed by uh, Robert Aldrich. Uh, Agnes Moorhead, who is the incredible and incredibly underrated actress who is in um, Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ab Ambersons. Um, she was in this film and she was nominated for uh, Best Actress in Supporting Role. Uh, so this film did quite well. It it got quite a few nominations, uh, but not for acting. The only acting nomination that it got was Agnes Moorhead, who is, is just mesmerizing. Um, but yeah, and Betty Davis did a few other more meaty roles in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. But Joan Crawford ended with Trog. Uh, that's how she ended her career. Unfortunately, so I think that I have one more or two other notes regarding this film. just um, just one or two yeah, I think i've yeah, I think I might have said a bit, yeah, I think that might we might have gone over our time limit. Um, I just wanted to like the, uh, regarding the questions like wh- what made them work together. Like I said, they just had to because they were the only women in Hollywood still working in Hollywood at their age. Other people like that. You you had Olivier Havilland who was kind of semi-retired and who was for, who was basically convinced to to jump in. And work on Hush Heart Sweet Charlotte um once John Crawford got sick. Um you had Catherine Hebben who's also worked consistently during the sixties, seventies, and eighties because she was Catherine Hebben and she had some sort of yeah clout, I suppose. I don't know. She she was in basically in a league of league of her own. And Barbara Stanwyck, who started doing T V um in the sixties, seventies and eighties uh but other from the from the golden age of Hollywood, there were n- n- very few actresses left working, so that's why they had to work together, of course, nowadays, you have people like Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang who played Betty and John in in the show feud, who are now I think they're in their seventies and they're still working, so things have changed for women um over yeah, the age I, of I just 50, wanted to.
1: Hopefully, I just kind of wanted to have a kind of sum up around that TV series. I just had a couple of notes on it. um Yeah, if you were have you seen it? No, I am um, close to
0: wrapping so up.
1: I kn- okay, that's no, I, I i was just going to say about Feud is that um I need. I I did see an episode. I think I saw the first episode when it aired back in twenty seventeen. And the only reason I know that is because I looked it up on Wikipedia just now and thought, I just remembered, oh yeah, I did see this um, because I recognised the actors involved. Um, So Mm. it was uh, done by a guy called Ryan Murphy, um, if you know, he's a... Yes. um, Who did... um, Everyone knows him from Nip, Tuck, and Glee, an American Horror Story, but what I know him from is Scream Queens, which is fantastic. Um... So yeah, um, I've I only I, seen. Uh, him, he's
0: done a, I've only seen American Horror... Go on.
1: Yeah, so I was just gonna say, like, um, he's done a this series called Feud, aired on FX, and um, yeah, starring Jessica Lang and uh, Susan Sarandon. Um, has he got Jack, uh, Stanley Tucci's in there? Alfred Molina. Yes yeah, so he's uh, playing. Shows up. Yeah. Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's Catherine a great. Bates, I
0: think it.
1: Kernan Shipka for those Mad Men fans who love a bit, uh, who like Kernan. Um. So yes. yeah. Uh, um. Yeah. So I think I think I think maybe like you know I-, I will be diving it more into the history between these two. Um. I think probably with Feud will be my starting point. Um. And yes. I probably. May, maybe pester Danny for more reading material between the two, about the two. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, I um, know for a fact. Yeah, I just we've wanted... got and yeah, carry on. Sorry, you go, you go first.
0: Um. Yeah, I just wanted to uh re- regarding Ryan Murphy, he's just released a new show on on Netflix called Hollywood, um, and it's a very interesting take on what would have happened. In nineteen forty-seven, nineteen forty-eight, if the producers in Hollywood, the big studio producers, had allowed people of color and and gay people more f- artistic freedom, what would have happened if they allowed a, a a a black woman to star in a film opposite a white guy? You know something like turn it like the whole history of Hollywood on its head basically and so and uh, remove all all barriers of of sex race gender um background it's an interesting what what if um like rewriting. it's basically a show about rewriting history and what would have happened I recommend it it's it's quite soapy it's quite. Cheesy at times, it makes you cringe sometimes, but I thought it was an interesting reflection on on how much power Hollywood has over over the masses, and and how it would have helped, it would have changed the world. So I think Ryan Murphy is quite a talented dude, and he he knows his Hollywood history.
1: Yeah, he does. Um, he some,
0: does. someone else who knows their Hollywood history very well is—I just want to give her a, a shout out because she's got an incredible um, amount of content on on YouTube. Uh, it's this girl called Isabel Custodio, and she has a she runs a YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind, which is dedicated to women in Hollywood and how their careers evolved over the years. It's incredible content. It's mostly to do with Oscar wins, Oscar nominations, Oscar, Oscar snubs. Um, it's yeah, it's just really incredible, and it just goes to show how far women have have come to getting more recognized and getting better stories told about them in in films. But it also we'll, shows. we that. We'll add that, we we'll add that link in, the, in the
1: show notes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll, add, we'll add that link in the show notes and for those that want to p- 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 uh, have a look at that.
0: Okay. Um, um, right. I think, so yeah, I think I was that's just, me
1: just, done. Yeah, so I was just going to wrap up and say that we will be talking about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford again. I know for a fact we've got at least uh, two more episodes on each. Um, I think we've got one. Have oh, we got two? One. Yeah, I know we've got one definitely coming up on Joan Crawford and we've got at least two. um, No, we've got two on Joan Crawford coming up and we've got two on Betty Davis coming up. Three on Betty Davis coming up, I think. Excellent. So, Danny will be able to continue her TED Talk (laughs) um thank you uh, but no no honestly no no it's been honestly really fascinating hearing you talk about um talking about those two and i'm sure for our audience it makes a makes a difference to than than me gushing about how great et is or talking about you know my love of other films that um everybody's seen (laughs) um whereas like talking about hearing somebody talk about betty davis and joan Crawford, you know for somebody like me who's you know like I said, the whole point of this podcast is it's kind of exposing people like me um, to the works of old Hollywood that maybe others haven't seen. Um, so yeah, no, I, I honestly, you've done done really well on that. And I I honestly look forward to hearing more about those two and other stories. Um,
0: well, I haven't actually exhausted my, my notes on, on both of them. And I'm sure I will be talking more about them and I can't wait to do it
1: yeah I, honestly, I mean i was just gonna say like i mean the only the only parallel modern hollywood has got is is the rock and van diesel <laughs> um so yeah uh which uh which which is uh quite funny um so yeah next week um we've got more betty davis <laughs> um, no we are looking at, excellent yes we are um, we are looking at a stolen life um, from 1946, <gasps> directed by Curtis Bernhardt, um, and we are also looking at the very underseen, and I say this literally, um, "Birth" by director Jonathan Glazer, came out in 2004, um, starring Nicole I Kidman. I love Jonathan Glazer, but no, yeah. Thing is with birth, I will talk about this next week, um, more and more detail. But you look at Jonathan Glazer's work, and Under the Skin was critically acclaimed. Sexy Beast, critically acclaimed. He has won masses of awards for his commercials work. Yes, I mean he did. Th- he did one of the greatest. He did the greatest advert in all time, which I will talk about next week. But you look up the rotten. This to- is a challenge for everybody next week. Look up the Rotten Tomatoes score for Birth. And look at the critical reviews for Birth that came out in two thousand and four, and then get excited because we're going to be talking about this film, um, and also get excited because D- Danny gets to talk more about Betty Davis. This um, is not just Betty Davis. So yeah, that...
0: this is Betty Davis times two.
1: So we got we got double doing, Davis. She,
0: double Davis, double whammy. to Betty Davis times two. She does a double role playing twins i can't wait i just can't wait yes it was it was her thing (laughs) (laughs) she did it twice (laughs) in her career
1: okay what we've what we've got with birth is we've we've yeah we've we've got a film that both of the films kind of from what our conversations are about pairing these two kind of there are similarities between the two and i said i'm excited to show danny birth and i'm actually excited to to watch a stolen life and to hear danny talk about a stolen life um and i really hope you're excited to see birth cool so yeah that um so to wrap up um danny where can we find you on the internet
0: so you can find me on the internet at kinojone.co.uk and on Twitter uh, my handle is Joan.
1: Um You can find me on the internet on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler. My website is superatomovision.com. I have actually launched a YouTube channel. I'm going to do some plugging. I launched a YouTube channel uh, the other Excellent. week. Excellent. Um, I did a re-edit of um, the film football V Noch nie, or Soccer As Never Before a 1971 uh, German film by Helmuth Gostard. I did a re-edit of the film of uh, him kind of taking of uh, filming the footballer George Best for 90 minutes. Uh, kind of re-edited that down to 25 minutes with a new soundtrack, new title cards and what have you. So that's on my YouTube channel. It's also available. Um, the link is on my website. Um, but the YouTube channel is the same as my website Super Otomo vision or you just search Fussball Vinochni. um <laughs> soccer is never before and you should be able to find it on there you don't expect me to um, watch that do you I mean it's 25 <laughs> minutes long uh, you may find it interesting
0: okay I um, don't like football George Best
1: George Best <laughs> being one of the greatest footballers ever and the greatest footballer okay. to never play in a world cup but uh, anyway oh. um please contact us on our email cool. uh keenotomic at gmail.com for any feedback whatsoever um, if you're listening on um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Deezer whatever it is you're listening to us on please subscribe, give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review um, it really helps us out in terms of getting this more out there for everybody and um, I want to say thank you all to listen, for listening and I hope to catch you all next week.
0: Thank you all see you next week